this yes. is hell. Okey doke. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. The military general strategist, philosopher, writer Sun Tzu is quoted saying, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That phrase is also believed to be an ancient Sanskrit saying. However, it didn't really gain the popularity it has today until the Cold War and a misapplication of the phrase in a recent Star Trek movie. But what happens when you apply that maxim in a situation where you are fighting an authoritarian who just happens to be to have very, very distasteful enemies? Following that logic can geopolitically become very, very problematic as well. Now, what happens if the enemy of your enemy happens to be opposed to, let's say, drag queen story hour, even protesting outside such events by using the Sieg Heil salute, or is violent and into what are called active clubs, getting into fights at events across the United States. Combine all that with an infatuation with mixed martial arts and a desire to fight alongside ultra-nationalists in Eastern Europe, and you be, could be creating a toxic brew of far-right neo-Nazi anti-trans blowback. Or the whole thing could just be goose-stepping online reactionaries trying to get clicks and street cred for their own neo-Nazi movement back home. Who knows? Well, in a few minutes, we'll try to figure out who is fighting or hoping to fight alongside ultranationalist Russians against the government of Vladimir Putin, but unaffiliated with Ukraine's military, and why they're fighting when we speak with national security reporter Ben Makich, who recently posted the Intercept piece, Russian military has links to American neo-Nazi and anti-trans figure. The leader of the anti-Putin Russian Volunteer Corps is publicly connected to Robert Rundo and Christopher Polhaus. And if you don't know who they are, Rundo and Polhaus are neo-Nazi leaders back here in the States. Ben is a former correspondent for Vice News Tonight. His reporting has taken him to the Middle East, Pakistan, Russia, and Ukraine, where he has covered the war since 2016. He hosted the 2022 podcast, American Terror, about far-right extremism in the United States. You can follow Ben on Twitter at bmakich, that's M-A-K-U-C-H, and follow Ben on Instagram at ben.makich. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how are you? How's your week going so far? So far, so good, Chuck. Any, uh, anything new by you? Um, not, oh, I picked up a couple classes uh, for the fall, so I'll be back in the classroom again. So that's exciting. Is that going to have an impact on your schedule here? Uh... We'll see. Oh, we'll talk about that off air. <laughs> what are yeah. the what are the uh, courses that you're going to be teaching? Uh, there's two sections of U.S. history since 1865. So what level classes? It's uh, like survey level. So we mostly get uh, you know uh, a lot of first and second year students in there. Very cool. When's that start? This fall? Uh, yeah, in August. Oh, yeah. you go you go back to school in August? Yeah. Wow. Yep. Late August, but. Yeah, I August used, nonetheless. I, some uh, schools that I went to, the, the classes would start as early as mid-August, and other ones wouldn't start until late September. It was always very confusing. It was confusing. I'm leaving for vacation at this exact time four days from now. We will be on the road and out of town, far away from anything remotely resembling a city. Yes, there's a few villages, but you won't even find anything as big as a town where we're going. And we're staying there for two solid days weeks 
Despite us leaving Chicago in less than 100 hours, departing feels like a million years away. There's our last Wednesday meet and greet for a few weeks that's happening this weekend. This is Hell Office Hours, which happen tonight at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge. Uh, because the Wi-Fi where I'm going is very undependable, we need to pre-record not one, not two, but three Patreon episodes, including new monologues for me, and decide which archived interviews we'll be playing. In order for me to leave and not freak out while supposedly on vacation, I need all of the research and writing for the show the week we return finished prior to hitting the road. By the way, our first show back will be Tuesday, August 14th, for those of you keeping score at home. But our home also needs to be in order, including the delivery of a new refrigerator as just minutes before this past Saturday's anniversary and listener appreciation party celebrating 27 years of This Is Hell. Our old fridge just died minutes before coming over here to host the party. We also have to pack two weeks of everything we need and somehow get all that stuff down three flights of stairs to the car. After me having yet another surgery earlier this month, I'm not allowed to carry anything more than 15 pounds, so get this, we will actually be weighing everything before we decide who will take what down three flights of stairs to our car. On top of all that, I need to get a new state ID as mine expired in 2015. I've never needed one in the past, but in the last year and a half, people keep requesting it for one reason or another, and not having an ID has become incredibly inconvenient especially for getting health care. But more important than my vacation happening soon, but me not feeling like it is, Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what do you need a vacation from? What do you need a vacation from? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want. This is how t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, including our new merch, which we revealed at last weekend's party, and you can pick some up if you drop by during tonight's office hours. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our Patreon page. You can post it on our Discord, or you can just email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. Will, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment? Jeff remembers when we tried civilization. Jeff remembers when we tried civilization. I'm looking forward to that moment. Yesterday, we uh, shared a story that Hugh posted at our Discord. It's the story of Newburn, that's N-E-W-B-E-R-N, Alabama, and how for the first time the 85% black population town finally had a black mayor. That mayor and his administration were then bullied, intimidated, followed by drones, targets of death threats, locked out of city offices, and when they temporarily got what little access they did to those offices, they found the vast majority of city documents and financial records were missing. And the former white city council and mayor used an illegal maneuver to remove the entire democratically elected government from office and reinstate the old white leadership. It's an awful story of how white supremacy and institutional racism still exist in the United States, despite so many being in denial. You can find that story at our Discord under the category General, where people have been sharing a lot of news stories that I find fascinating. 
So, Hugh sent us another story that uh, they believe will also spark the interest from our listeners, but for entirely and unrelated reasons. Hugh writes, not related to This Is Hell specifically, maybe hell mans, but just wanted to share that our Ontario government weed store is selling THC mayonnaise. However, as is the problem with a lot of links that have been shared lately, especially on social media platforms, the one Hugh shared goes nowhere. Why? I have no idea. But this keeps happening to me over and over again. A link is shared, even an ad, and you click on it and nothing happens at all. So I did a little research and found that legal recreational cannabis is aggravating Heilman's mayonnaise. Or sorry, Hellman's mayonnaise. I don't know why I said Hellman's. Hellman's mayonnaise. Apparently, some brands of THC-infused mayo are selling their product in similar packaging to Hellman's, which is not surprisingly, uh, you know, trademarked. In fact, did you know that Hellman's mayo has trade secrets as secretive as Coca-Cola? Who knew? And more importantly, who cares? You can make your own mayo, and it's way better. And just like regular mayo online, you can uh, also easily find a recipe so you can make your own THC-infused mayo and not have to go all the way to the government store in Ontario. The only alternative ingredient in THC mayo from regular mayo is cannabis-infused oil, which is used as an alternative to vegetable or soybean oil. However, the recipe I found online was very very potent. Every one I found was very potent, each including a whole cup of what's called canna oil, cannabis oil. According to insider.com, cannabis oil is very, very strong. Quote, there are 48 teaspoons in a cup, 1,078 milligrams divided by 48 teaspoons equals 22 milligrams THC per teaspoon of cannabis oil. That's a pretty potent teaspoon, since a standard dose of THC is 10 milligrams, not 22. You'll want to use no more than half, or roughly one half teaspoon per dose. But that whole cup is in the mayo in every recipe I found. found. So if you are, for whatever reason, suddenly desiring making your own THC mayo or purchasing it anywhere, be very careful, because I have a feeling that if you put THC mayo on a sandwich, you will soon be waking up and wondering why your face is firmly planted in a partially eaten sandwich. Coming up, why is the Ukraine-Russia war attracting America's anti-trans neo-Nazis? Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell exclusively for subscribers. And following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. And how about this for the end of the world, or at least a harbinger of it? Unaffiliated fighting forces made up of anti-trans neo-Nazis taking up arms in conflicts between nations, choosing sides, and potentially bringing that training back home. Okay, it may not be the end of the world, but it's still pretty damn scary. Here to help us understand who is fighting in the Russia-Ukraine war, why they're fighting, and who wants to join them, national security reporter Ben Makich recently posted the Intercept piece, Russian militia has links to American neo-Nazi and anti-trans figure. You can follow Ben on Twitter at bmakich, M-A-K-U-C-H, and follow Ben on Instagram at ben.makich. Welcome to This Is Hell, Ben. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for being on our show. You write that in late May, an alliance of anti-Putin partisans used Ukrainian territory to launch a stunning incursion into Western Russia, spearheaded by the Russian Volunteer Corps, RVC, and its leader, Denis Kapustin, a wanted neo-Nazi and ex-soccer hooligan. The assault exposed just how vulnerable Russia had become to attacks since its invasion of Ukraine. So the question I think everybody would first be asking is, does using Ukrainian land for an incursion into Russia necessarily mean that this Russian Volunteer Corps, the RVC, must have some sort of coordination with Ukraine? Ukraine, Or is Ukraine right now, I mean, it's in the middle of a crisis. It's in the middle of a war. Is it just like the Wild West with little central government control and coordination? Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, if you look at the war, it's always attracted many volunteers going back to 2014. There's been thousands of people from all over the world, including the West and also from, you know, former Soviet republics. Right now, in terms of the RVC and the Russian militias that are functioning uh, along the border, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's been verified that they are acting in tandem or with at least the cooperation of Ukrainian intelligence and the military. I mean, you can't just have a military or have a have a militia the size in which uh, the RBC is and not be and on Ukrainian territory and not be at least acting with their consent. Uh, and we know that some of them have received apparently medals from the Ukrainian government, or at least they, they've said they have. Uh, there's been some of their fighters seen at uh, the Zaporizhia region, which is where the uh, a very famous or infamous nuclear power plant is that Russia's stashed weapons and, and explosives at. So we know that they're all over Ukraine and have used it as a base of operations. Not only that, they've had uh, allegedly had a U.S. armored vehicles that have been given to Ukraine that they were using on some of these incursions. So it, there's really no doubt that that they're acting with the Ukrainian military. I guess the question is, and I think this is something that's sort of at the core of a lot of my reporting, especially when it comes to Ukraine and the use of extremists and, and some of these organizations like Azov and, and the right sector. What happens when your country is completely, you know, its, ex, it's very existence is, is called into question and, you know, your enemy is very clearly an oppressive autocrat who wants to subjugate and, you know, do terrible things uh, to your nation and also based on an ethnic uh, on an ethnic basis. And I think that's when you start seeing some of these types of organizations like the RBC coming to the for forefront and, 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 and seizing the opportunity to, to arm themselves and engage in, in, in the war. So is this an understandable and completely ra rational act despite being an act of desperation when a nation with relatively little military force is fighting a major power. I mean, does it make sense that, well, you can't just weed out people and say, we don't want you to be here to defend our country because you're in such a state of desperation? You know, that's a real, I think that's a real philosophical question. And I think, you know, we, NATO countries, uh, the U.S. military, uh, I'm from Canada, and I certainly know there's Canadian far-right people in the Canadian military, and the U.S. has, I, I've done... Uh, extensive reporting that there's lots of far-right people, obviously in the minority, but there is a sizable group of people who are neo-Nazis and far-right that's serving uniform. I think when it comes to making that gambit of we will arm and, and work with, 
and let's make no mistake, the RVC is not just a far right or there are guys inside of the group that are neo-Nazis. This is a group that is openly na- ultra-nationalist neo-Nazi. I mean, they they essentially model themselves after a white Russian uh, commander of the 30s. So this is, you know, people who are, who are trying to bring back the czar and also was a fascist. So they are absolutely neo-Nazis. So when you make a deal with a group like this, and I think Ukraine is has done this in the past. It's very well well established that you know they have the Azov Battalion, which had huge elements of of uh, of neo Nazis, and for a very long time, and I think still does, or officially or unofficially, uses uh, a neo Nazi rune in its symbol, the Volsangle. You make those types of gambits. It, it's understandable at times of war, and I've I've covered conflict, and it's you know, desperation and what it looks like on the ground is there's a lot of brutality. And I can understand why people look to whoever will help protect them. That said, you now have billions and billions of dollars of of Pentagon weapons flowing into the country and questions surrounding who is getting those weapons and what this is going to look like afterwards, especially when you're, when you're, uh, when you're catering to these types of people, uh, that's where I think, you know, we, I think, need to be, uh, at least the U.S. government, and I think NATO has to be much more uh, much more aware of what's happening. Because, you know, and I hate to use the example, but it's a pretty obvious one. I mean, look at what we did when we were arming the Mujahideen in, in the 80s and what came from that. And we, as we know, very infamously, the Taliban rose from it and also Al-Qaeda. So there's a track record of just sort of pouring weapons into some place and giving what we think are our allies weapons and and i'm not su- suggesting that ukraine isn't an ally of the us but elements of 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 their military apparatus is certainly you know anti-establishment uh and ultra-nationalist and wants a fascist state so i think that's it, it, it's it's something that needs to be considered so it, it, well i don't even know if this is quantifiable but is the ukrainian military at this point equipped well enough and trained well enough where they don't have to depend on these organizations like the RVC anymore? I would say so, yes. They don't have to depend on them. But, uh, you know, I think if you see what the RVC did when they did it, uh, they made an incursion into the Belgorod region and this is in Western Russia and clearly like forced the Kremlin and the MOD in Russia to take some of its troops and and stop this from happening because i mean i mean how how ridiculous is it if you're if you're a russian official that you started this war almost two years ago and now your lands are being incurred upon and, and you're being uh invaded to some extent but that also matched up to a time when uh, the ukrainians were launching their counteroffensive or their spring counteroffensive which has had you know very mixed results as of now but it it Clearly, they they have an effect, and they are uh, they're useful. I think to the to the Ukrainian military movement. That said, it's you know these types of groups they form a minority of what you know w- what actually encompasses the entire Ukrainian war effort. But I should also caveat that with you know Ukraine also needs manpower, and they still need manpower. They still need more and more people to fight. And I mean, that's one thing that's facing the country. You have, you have Russia, which is 100 million plus people, 
and Ukraine is nowhere near that, and they have much more reserves to fight with. Ukraine very much so could use these numbers. I mean, even if it, even if it's you know three four hundred guys, you know, it, it's still useful. I think that's that's something that uh, that I think listeners should understand. It's that type of number of skilled fighters who are, say, uh, ideologically inclined and are are passionate about their movement, whether or not it's ultra nationals or not, uh, it's it's useful and effective. So I think it's, you know, I think they're still at the point where they can they need everything they can get. According to an article in the New Voice of U- Ukraine from Saturday, July fifteenth, Russian Storm Z units formed mainly from recruited criminals have been increasing their presence in Bryansk Oblast, along Russia's border with Belarus, Ukraine's National Resistance Center said, quoting sources in the Russian Volunteer Corps. Storm Z is a so-called disciplinary military unit created by Russia's defense ministry on the same pattern as the Wagner Group mercenary company. Members of the unit are recruited in Russian prisons, being motivated by a reduced in prison terms or a reduction in prison terms and allowances of an amount of $2,000 a month. So are the anti-Putin partisan forces of the RVC in any way similar to, or are they very different from, being either a mercenary or disciplinary group made up of former prisoners and, as the new voice of Ukraine calls them, criminals? Or... Is the new voice of Ukraine not necessarily the best place to get your news about Ukraine? <laughs> well, look, there's a lot of news going on everywhere about this war. That's one thing that's, you know, there's been such a flood of information. But I, I would say, look, like uh, Kapustin is, I, I believe he's uh, he's actually banned from the Schengen zone uh, from, I think, German authorities uh, were able to put something into uh, the court system to, to to ban him from it. So. I don't think these the RVC necessarily has has very clean hands, especially when you're recruiting from you know the neo-Nazi hooligan circles of Russia. And I've 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 reported on that exact scene. I've spent you know I spent two and a half weeks with uh, a neo-Nazi hooligan firm in Siberia in 2017 or 2016, and I can tell you that I think pretty much to a man, all of them had served a prison sentence. Uh, was involved in petty crime, and many of them had served in the military. So, are they as uh, do they have the same brutality as a as a convict who's been serving for 10, 15 years for uh, murder or violent crimes like rape? I, I I couldn't make that assessment. I would have to know more. But you know, this is something that Russia has been doing as a feature of the war from the very beginning. I mean, Prigozhin. Uh, was recruit the Wagner mercenary leader was recruiting recruiting from from prisons pretty much at the outset when things started to go poorly I think it was like a week later he was pictured or videoed recruiting for the Wagner group so Russia has done I mean in Russia and, and to be clear as well Russia's courting of not only neo Nazis but of uh, of of inmates has been far worse and far more involved than anything Ukraine has done. In terms of uh, allowing, you know, far right elements in their military to be fighting. I mean, Russia makes no no bones about it. They will use anybody. Uh, I was I was reading something recently that you know they will sacrifice a thousand men in order to find out where a sniper is and then to launch thousands of artillery shells on it. So they they're very wasteful and they'll take anybody. So I think in in this context. No matter what Russia really does, uh, especially the this Putin regime, 
what they do and how they court these groups, it's it's certainly far more severe, and I think it you know borders on on pretty evil. So is this? Uh, are we looking at neo Nazis fighting neo Nazis? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean that, that's that's happened already. If you look at the wars in in uh, or the war in Donbass before, you know the full scale invasion of the country in February 2022, and I covered it. And I'd been with a group called the Right Sector, which is ultra nationalist, but also has anarchists and other types of uh, uh, political extremists inside their organization, but also a huge contingent of neo Nazis. They were fighting on the other side some of these Donetsk people's uh, people's groups that many of which had huge contingents of far-right neo-Nazis from Russia. So this is something that's been a, a, a major feature of the war from for years. Uh, and even now we know that there are, I mean, Utkin, who's, who is the, essentially the, the real, I think the real uh, namesake for Wagner, it was, call, it was his call sign in the military, sort of uh, was Prigozhin's number two. Uh, this is a man who loves neo, who loves the not the Third Reich and has tattoos that suggest so. Uh, is clearly like a fascist, and you know he was part of like the the Russian security services. So this is not new. I, I mean, not to mention Wagner. Uh, I, I'm sure some of your listeners know that Wagner is quite popular with the Third Reich and also with neo Nazis. So uh, Russia has been doing this pretty for a pretty long time. And, uh, and I think also in some, in some ways that region of the world has had sort of this ultra nationalist far right issue within its own population for a very long time. And there's the, I mean, the Wagner group has gotten so big, they've even been involved in what's called state capture in places like Mozambique. You were mentioning earlier, just pouring weapons into a situation to solve the, the problem, how that, uh, you know, we can look back at the Mujahideen and how that led to their power. Uh, is that the major, larger, bigger issue situation here? The U.S. policy, the Western policy, the NATO policy of pouring weapons into a war zone, that that fuels armed extremism? Well, you know, here's the thing. We don't know yet. And I think that's something that's important to, to, to make a distinction on because unfortunately this war hasn't come to an end, whether by peace or by, you know, Ukrainian victory, which I think most people in the U S and Europe and around the world would probably rather see, I think, especially just for the, for the respect for statehood. Uh, but having said that, you know, the, the U.S. government and NATO does not have a great track record of pouring weapons in somewhere and it not backfiring and it not causing problems later, is, is what I would say. Now, of course, I think Ukraine is a far more responsible party. And, and I think the majority of whatever is being given to them is being used properly. And they are a, a, a fairly professional military that, you know, is using what they get because they're desperate for it. And many of their top guys have had lots of training in, in different uh, NATO militaries and, and certainly the US military has trained them. So they're much more of a responsible party than say, you know, a, a bunch of uh, Mujahideen fighters in the 80s who just wanted to shoot down Soviet helicopters uh, and didn't really have any, any connections to, you know, professional militaries. But I think what, I, what is, is something that is going to be an issue, and certainly I've had this told to me by some 
members of of, Uk- of Ukrainian military uh, apparatus. One uh, one guy who was a part of the Azov uh, political side, he told me that you know Ukraine's going to be the next Texas when this is all over. The amount of weapons that have poured into it. And I think when you have elements of the far right and neo-Nazis, which, you know, we, we, we certainly do in the Ukrainian military, however small they are, and they are a very small minority, these are people who are very politically motivated and radical in a way that suggests in the future, if they're not given what they wanted and they have access to weapons, they could be a problem. And I think this is something that will face uh, Europe as a security concern when this is all over. I mean, I have a joke with a friend of mine who also was reported from Ukraine pretty extensively. We'll know the war is over when, you know, Odessa is, is, is quiet, no longer getting missile struck, but some gangster there gets taken out with a javelin missile in the back of his limousine, because I think that's what's going to happen. You're going to have a lot of weapons lying around and we'll see who gets them. It, that sounds much like the situation was before 2014 in Ukraine with uh, in the way in which it was being described in the national media that, uh, you know, criminal leaders were controlling different parts of the country and that they were all in competition with each other. It, are we just going full circle back to where everything began? Well, I think, you know, the, the Zelensky government has been very, even recently, the crackdown on MPs and on uh, military officials. They're very, very keen on rooting out corruption. And I think that they're they're wise to do so because the country was extremely, and I think, you know, to be honest with you, I think still certainly has elements of it, a very corrupt. I mean, it's one of the most corrupt countries in the entire world up until 2014 and even after. I mean, when I was there in 2016, I remember the Ukrainian National Guard stopped us at a at a uh, at a checkpoint on the way out. It was like the last checkpoint out of Donbass, and you know they were trying to shake me down for for a bribe. I mean, this is 2016 when you know I think at that point I'd actually even covered the Ukrainian military getting trained by NATO forces. So this is something that the country is really contended with. I do I, I do honestly believe that the Ukrainian government's very interested in stopping this and, and stemming it. But, you know, when this war is over, it's really going to be a test. Uh, and I think I do believe it will end at some point. And I do think that Ukraine will be independent from, from Russia. Uh, now, will some of these old power structures come back? Time will tell. Uh, as I said, I do think Zelensky has been, uh, been quite effective so far in trying to root it out. But, you know, these, as we know, and there's other, there's countries in Europe that are, are still wildly corrupt. So it, it, it will be, it will certainly be a, a feature of the post-war landscape. You write of the wanted neo-Nazi and ex-soccer hooligan who spearheaded the RVC attack from Ukraine into Russia back in May. For years, Kapustin has maintained public links with two notorious American neo-Nazis, Robert Rundo, the founder of the street fighting group Rise Above Movement, which was at the yep. center of the 2017 violence in Charlottesville, and Christopher Polhouse, an ex-Marine and leader of a group that terrorizes drag events in the United States. So the group, according to numerous sources uh, that uh, Polhouse is in, front, in charge of, or supposedly a leader of, 
is called the Blood Tribe. And according to the Anti-Defamation League in 2023, Pole House and Blood Tribe members began participating in anti-LGBTQ plus protests at such protests. Pole House has led members of the Blood Tribe dressed in red and black uniforms bearing the group's symbol and flying a large swastika uh, flag in aggressive chants in front of a large banner reading, There Will Be Blood. According to NPR, Rundo's a self-professed white nationalist and fascist. He also regularly traffics in anti-Semitic tropes. He's facing charges in California for rioting and conspiring to riot at political rallies with members of his racist fight club, again, the Rise Above movement. In fact, he has been facing those charges for five years and was finally arrested in Romania at the end of March of this year for the purpose of being extradited back to the United States. Is there then been some uh, new global trend that private or otherwise unaffiliated far-right paramilitary groups made up of mercenaries and former prisoners and potentially current criminals are joining forces in war zones? Or are they not as much cooperating? Are they in competition with each other? So is there a global trend of this happening, not just within Russia and Ukraine, but elsewhere? And are they working together or are they working against one another? Well, I think if you want to look at actual war zones and, and sort of the connections in the global far right, that the only place that's really happening, I think, is is Ukraine uh, and obviously with, in conflict with Russia. There has been a history of it as well in in Colombia and Venezuela. Some some individuals have joined paramilitary groups in Colombia to fight the Chavista government in, in Venezuela. But uh, I think what's really important to remember is that the far right is creating global connections in a way that I think is very troubling because now they're 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 comparing notes. So they're looking at what was effective organizational strategies and they're being adopted oppositely from each other. So for example, one of the top organizing uh, principles of the European far-right neo-Nazi scene for a long time was, you know, mixed martial arts, UFC fighting. This was, this was something that really brought together, you know, your, your street fighting neo-Nazi or your street fighting fascist with like your thinking man's fascist. And they got into these groups called, or the, which are now called active clubs. And there they developed real bonds. I mean, this is this is the basis of the RVC right now, you know? So you take something like that and Rundo, clearly he had an interest in sort of reproducing that same structure in America. And I think to some extent was quite successful in exporting the idea of active clubs to the US. I think if, if there's 30 something plus active clubs now in the US, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and, and and even uh, Polhouse similarly, I think he's he he looks at the the fascist Fight Club as uh, as also a, a partially a, um, a an organizational uh, example. So uh, the more concerning thing, and I think the more important point is that there are there's a global far right fascist neo Nazi movement that is connecting itself and learning from each other in or in an organic way that I think previously wasn't so uh, fruitful. And I think that that's, that's something that is, is, is important to remember, especially as we, we go into another presidential election, which I should, I should remind listeners that, you know, the last 
2020 election was just an absolute breeding ground of extremism and, and, and far-right politics. So can you explain to me why neo-Nazis are so fascinated by soccer hooliganism and, uh, you know, this uh, MMA fighting? Why? What is it about neo-Nazism that leads people to be attracted to those? What does that reveal to you about the neo-Nazis today when they're so into MMA and soccer hooliganism? Well, you know what? It goes back to the Third Reich. Like, why are all these? It's just it's the same question of toxic masculinity and dudes who just need to be what they call the ubermensch because they're clearly insecure and need to be need to make themselves some sort of ultimate fighting machine. I mean, this is something that goes back throughout the entire lore of neo-Nazism post-World War II as well. I mean, they see what Kapustin is doing and they're seeing it as like the, you know, the, the, the manifest destiny of, of uh, white supremacy, right? Like he's now, now he's commanding his own forces and is a not only political, but paramilitary force during a conflict. And that's what's something that blew my mind is that I know Polos pretty well. I've been reporting on him for a long time. I've interviewed him. And he can be a bit of a showman, but he's also, you know, his activism, he, he really does carry through what he says he's going to do. And to see that this sort of fringe white nationalist figure in the U.S. who showed up to a, to a, a drag event in Ohio with a pistol on his, on, on his hip could be connected to someone who very clearly is a paramilitary figure in the war in Ukraine, not only blows my mind, but to him and to other neo-Nazis, this is the model. It's, it's, this is how, you know, they all want to accelerate the collapse of the U.S. government or, or the collapse of society in order to create their own white ethnostate or their own white community and to, to engage in, in, in extreme acts of violence in a paramilitary setting. And I think, and I've seen this many times, and in the neo-Nazi community in the United States, they also loved the Azov battalion because they were doing the same thing. They'd become sort of veritable uh, warlords of, of Mariupol. And to them, looking at that group of people, it's it's like, look what we could do. Look what we could do if this all starts to fall apart. And I think that's something that's very attractive to them. We are speaking with national security reporter Ben Mackich, who recently posted the Intercept piece, Russian military has links to American neo-Nazi and anti-trans figure. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Mackich, and you can follow him on Instagram at Ben.Mackich. So you write that in the wake of Russian mercenary leader Yevgeny Prigozhin's mutiny against President Vladimir Putin's regime weeks ago, Kapustin illustrates just how radical some of the faces of armed opposition to Putin really are. Why does Putin attract such a radical right-wing opposition? How is he not nationalist enough for ultra-nationalists? Well, what's interesting is this has been a feature of his uh, his reign the entire time that he's been the president of Russia. Uh, the far right has always hated him because the far right to them, he's not going far enough. You know, he does court. He has courted the West in the past. He does want to be, to some extent, uh, a global figure that is accepted. You know, when he was when he was ousted from the G8, this was something that I think pissed Putin off. You know, he he wants to be accepted. So his politics are while autocratic and dictatorial, 
you know, this is not, this is someone who would have, who would have had a problem with the Holocaust, you know, like, and that's, that's really what the line is, I think, for, for the far right. They don't want some uh, catering individual who, who doesn't want to actually exterminate people, right? So to them, he doesn't go far enough and never has. And, you know, the other thing with, to, to remember about these ultra-nationalists is they really are, especially in Russia, they really are responding to the collapse of the Soviet Union and some of the, the, the loss of prestige and power. I mean, it's the same reason why many on the far right in Russia are still asking, you know, they're, they're calling for a nuclear war with the West because that's, you know, it's like the only thing they have left that's a, a powerful you know, a tool against against the U.S., against the, the, the world order. So they're attracted to that. They don't think he's gone far enough, especially since the prosecution of this war has been an, you know, a pretty unadulterated disaster for the Russian Ministry of Defense. You look at someone like uh, Igor Gherkin, who was just arrested. He's an ultranationalist blogger, a former FSB officer. He also you know, spoke against the Kremlin and their effectiveness. And I think... Uh, to them, Putin is just sort of this, this joke, uh, I think. And not only is he kind of considered a joke to them, but the important thing to remember is he became a real enemy in that he did force his security services to crack down on these guys and put them in jail. Uh, like I said, I, 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 I've met personally with some Russian neo-Nazis who had served terrorism and extremism sentences in Russian prisons. You know, and it was mostly for soccer hooliganism or, you know, things similar to street violence. So he he really is this figure, this really maligned figure for the far right in Russia. But there have been U.S. political leaders who have been saying, have actually been calling for uh, the assassination of Vladimir Putin. Is the alternative right now? to Vladimir Putin, do we know to what extent that alternative in Russian leadership would be any better or worse than Putin? Well, uh, interestingly, I, I, I published an article today in the New Republic that was looking at sort of the intelligence scene surrounding uh, the Prigozhin mutiny. And my own sources told me that in Western intelligence circles, there is a feeling that, you know, the best case scenario is Putin does stay in power, provided he loses in Ukraine, because what comes next could be far, far worse. I mean, this is a this is a group of people that are calling for nuclear war with the with the with, with the U.S. almost daily. So I, I think it's first of all, I think it's incredibly irresponsible when politi politicians call for the assassination of foreign leaders. Um, it, 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 this is not a, a state of affairs we want to be in. Uh, but I think with Putin, you know. As much as this guy has been has done terrible, terrible things. I mean, there's there's no doubt about that. That this this man is you know prosecuted a, a brutal, almost genocidal war against Ukraine, and some of the war crimes that have been committed are, are truly, truly horrific. If he's gone, what comes next? There is a risk that it is far worse. And let's not forget that Russian the Russian Federation is a conglomerate of several uh, several different nations, uh, different uh, ethnicities, different languages are spoken. There's a big chance that a, you know the, the Federation falls apart and then we're, we're dealing with several breakoff nations. A and two, that this is a, this is a nation that's the, has the most nuclear weapons in the entire world. And that's something that 
people, you know, I know Oppenheimer just came out and people are starting to think about it a little bit more, but nuclear weapons still are the biggest threat to our species. I mean, it, we could destroy the world tomorrow if we wanted to. So if Russia fell apart and all of these weapons fell in the hands of an ultra-nationalist group or to someone like, you know, Gherkin or uh, people aligned even slightly to someone like Kapustin, this is a bad, this is an issue. This is not good for us. It's not good for anyone. You also point out how following the RVC's cross-border operations, which featured American-supplied Humvees and other armored vehicles, reports rightly pointed out that the RVC and its politics could provide a boost for Russian propagandists who frequently accuse Kiev of being a kind of Fourth Reich. So they have U.S.-supplied weaponry. Is the U.S. giving arms directly to paramilitary neo-Nazi forces in Ukraine, or are these groups acquiring U.S. arms without the consent of the United States? I I, I don't think that the United States is knowingly giving these weapons to the RVC. I think that they're giving these weapons to Ukraine, and I think it's been sort of a, a feature of this war that they're hoping they're used responsibly. I mean, if you look at it like this, they were giving high, they started giving HIMARS and, and longer range missile systems to Ukraine. And one of the things they said was you cannot, they did not want Russia or the Russian homeland to be struck. So and now we're seeing parts of Russia have been struck. So I think it's more a feature of, well, Ukraine's kind of doing what they want with these weapons. And also I think it, it speaks to some of the, some of the chaos that's going on there that I think a group like that can find their way into possession of these types of weapons. So I don't, I, I, I would be, I would be quite shocked to know that the U S military was, you know, privately and uh, covertly supplying weapons to the RBC knowingly, because I, I, I just don't see the cost benefit for them. So what is the possibility of or potential for Ukraine losing control over an ever-growing neo-Nazi paramilitary force within their borders? Could Ukraine be a launching pad for a Russian emigre ultra-nationalist war against uh, uh, Russia and one that Ukraine cannot stop? Or is that simply a Putin supporter's fantasy to legitimate his war against Ukraine? Because that seems to be like a very thin line between legitimate uh, Putin propaganda legitimating the war and what is the real internal security threat potentially of neo-Nazis within Ukraine. Quite honestly, I think that anything is possible. Uh, I do think that the way that these sorts of organizations are being used by the Ukrainian military to them is, well, we're using them as manpower. Right now, we're not dealing with the rest. And I think this is something that could certainly be a problem for them in the future when they want to join the EU or there's talks that they will join NATO. But in terms of being a launching pad of neo-Nazi, Russian neo-Nazis who want to make incursions into Russia, I mean, it already is, is what I would say. And I think that does provide a pretty poignant piece of propaganda. That's not only true, but speaks to sort of this ridiculous concept that Putin put forth at the very beginning that he wants to denazify Ukraine. Do I think that that could happen in the future? You know, like anything in any conflict, a lot can happen quickly and we really don't know. I mean, there could be, look at how, how insane and uh, history changing the Prigozhin mutiny coup attempt, however you want to call it, 
look what it did. You know, it, 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 it showed that, wow, Putin really is in, in much worse shape than we thought. So things can turn quickly. Could that happen? I, I think it's certainly a possibility. We know that the RFUC is organized and they are in Ukraine and they already have made attacks on Russia. So for that to, to grow and be stronger, anything is possible. You write that in almost daily statements, Kapustin and the RVC publicly ask for recruits with military experience to join the Corps and provide forms for direct contact to their recruiters from, through a telegram. Is there any idea of how much response they're getting and how many are actually joining up? Well, uh, yesterday they posted a video, uh, which looked like several men, probably about two dozen, if, if my memory serves correctly. Uh, and it was men who were hopping on a bus and giving their passports up to a, an RVC recruiter. Uh, and then there was there's some clips of them training. And uh, the passports were all Russian passports from, from, from what I was able to tell. So it's growing. I mean, I think it's definitely growing. There, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think that they are clearly getting some interest. I think that this is a moment where Russian ultranationalists and nationalists are seeing their spot with Putin and seeing that this might be a time where they could go after him. So they are getting, they're getting a response. You know, Christopher Polhouse, who's the ex-Marine neo-Nazi leader of the Blood Tribe we were talking about earlier, he's pledging to go over and join Kapustin in some capacity. So it's not, you know, it's not, it's not shrinking. That's for sure. But is this just about anything other than earning credibility for Pole House, even exaggerating participation to gain attention? Is this all a, uh, you know, some sort of con by online neo-Nazi influencers trying to get clicks and make money? Or is it something more than that? Well, look, we know fact for fact that there has been American neo-Nazis who fought in Ukraine. And there's certainly, the other thing I'm aware of is there is a secret pipeline of some, of some design getting some of these guys with military experience into Ukraine to fight. It's been true for, for many years before the full-scale invasion happened. How many of them are actually there right now? That's tough to tell, I think. And, and again, I do think time will tell as to how many of these guys went over and who they were. But speaking directly to Polhouse, this is someone who has typically been boisterous online, but, you know, unlike other neo-Nazis, his activism, he's put it into effect. You know, he said he was going to move to Maine and and try to start a compound in a white ethno state. And, you know, he moved to Maine and he, he apparently did actually start building something with other members of that area. Uh, he said he wanted to start doing more street activism and confronting these, uh, these drag events. He's done it. So... You know, for him to say he wants to go to Ukraine, I think it's more, will he be able to get into the country without the authorities saying, no, you can't come in? That's a bigger question. And I, and I think, you know, many of these guys say they're going to go, but the follow through isn't always there. Uh, but, you know, I've known many, many foreign fighters who didn't know what they were doing on Sunday and ended up in Ukraine on, you know, Thursday. It's not the hardest place to get into either. So to answer your question, I, I, I don't think it's just for clicks. Uh, I think it's partially for that, but I think there is some real follow through with some of these guys. And it, it's something to, it's look, 
you can listen to me or you can also look at some of the U.S. government documentation on this. I mean, DHS and FBI, they are worried about these guys coming back and they're worried about guys going over. Uh, and I don't think that they have those worries if there wasn't evidence that it actually was happening. We were mentioning earlier uh, the pouring of weapons into a conflict zone. Do you think this is in any way all these kind of unaffiliated uh, forces that are within Ukraine uh, and also what we are seeing with the way in which the uh, Putin government is recruiting people into the military? Do you think this is in any way an outcome of or related to the global increased privatization of militaries and wars worldwide? Are these kinds of paramilitary groups growing? And are they all far-right neo-Nazis, or will they fight for whoever will support them financially? So is this something about the privatization of war that we're seeing worldwide, and will they basically fight for anybody without a political cause? You know what? I would actually say no. Uh, I think the privatization of militaries, it's a broader problem. These sorts of situations, I think what's happening is, in terms of the availability of weapons and it's more, it's a, it, it's a, it, it's a complete example of the streamlining of organization, right? This is not some of these groups like the RVC or Azov or any of these, these militias. It, it's very similar to the way ISIS just completely formed up in 2014 in Syria and Iraq. Like the fact that we have global movements that can connect, that can connect covertly, that are, are can, can share, have shared ideologies and they're able to come together and they're actually able to like fly somewhere meet in a place and then join a group. I mean, this is this is something that's been happening for a long time. And I think when you have something like Ukraine, where uh, it, it has been traditionally a bit of a free for all, you can create these paramilitary groups. I think when it comes to the privatization of war, I think the bigger the, the bigger concern is that we're making weapons at a rate we never have before. There, weapons companies are 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 hand over fist in terms of their profits, it's ridiculous the amount of, of profits they're seeing from this. But also, it's the war in Ukraine is good for business for them. And I think that, that you see because of that, when the weapons are lying around, someone's going to find them, someone's going to pick them up. And I think when you have these paramilitary organizations, they're m- are much more able to get a hold of them, especially when they're in need to some extent. They're serving sort of a... Uh, they're filling a, a, a need for, say, the Ukrainian military or, or even NATO's overall uh, goals for the war. I think the privatization of war in groups like Wagner and Blackwater and other groups that are that are out there. I think the problem with that is that, especially in the U.S., we've had you know twenty years of permanent brutal war, and there are a lot of special operators and guys who fought in. Uh, wars who are killers who don't have anything else to do and many of them have been hired by foreign powers and i think that is something that is uh is is to keep an eye on and you know in many ways this this war as well in ukraine it's kind of the americans that have joined and and have gone there as foreign fighters it's it's sort of a hangover of the war on terror and how these forever wars have produced these types of individuals who keep going and fighting and you know essentially laying their marks on on, on a, a foreign conflict. It's just, it, it almost like it, it's, it just never ends. You know, we, we got out of Afghanistan in <clears throat> the summer of 2021. And by February, 2022, U.S. military, uh, U.S. 
U.S. military contractors were pouring weapons into Ukraine. So it's, we go from one conflict to the next, it seems. So, I mean, so again, bigger picture is the issue, just the U.S. military and, you know, industrial complex and uh, its profit seeking around the world and the dependence the U.S. economy more, you know, increasingly has on that military complex. I, you know, and that's a completely different conversation, right, right. but I, 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 I'm happy to talk about it again, uh, but I can definitely preview it. Uh, I think that that's probably one of the biggest problems facing the world. I don't think it's just the U.S. I think, you know, look at Russia. One of its chief exports is military goods. Right. You know, like Russia, I think in large part did this war and Putin did this war in order to show that they still got it. Like they still got the juice. And I think the what I always tell people is, they're not making these weapons so they're not used. It's not for peace. You know, these contractors, when they make something, they need to sell it. So when it comes to the war in Ukraine, I think it's 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 filled a massive hole in the military industrial complex's profits that they were they thought they were gonna lose following these, you know, these forever wars. Now, I mean I remember at first during the war, at the early goings of the full-scale invasion, you had people saying that, you know, the military industrial complex was going to, was losing money. And I remember telling people, you know, that's BS. <laughs> and right now, it, first of all, the, the U.S., the Pentagon is going to start giving weapons, and it's usually from stock. They're going to, A, have to replace that. So then they're going to get the contracts for that. And then on top of all that, they're going to see what's going on in Ukraine. And they're going to say, well, we need all these new other types, we all need, we don't need these types of weapons. We need these types of weapons and they're going to boost those profits. And then when you see NATO, they're going to react to it and say, well, what do we need for the next war with Russia? Or what do we need for the next war with China? And that's exactly what we're seeing. You know, Poland is undergoing a massive militarization right now. They're, they're buying F-35s, they're buying Abrams tanks, they're buying tanks from South Korea, Germany for the first time is militarizing in a way that they haven't since World War II, and we all know how that ended. So the world, I mean, quite often when you have these military buildups, they lead to worse things. I mean, like, I don't have to talk about World War One and how the naval buildup led to what it is now uh, or what happened with that war. And we see the same thing in Southeast Asia. There's a huge boon of, of naval weapons around the South China Sea from multiple countries. It, when you do these sorts of things, you're not doing it for peace. You know, there's there, there are deterrents, but eventually someone shoots somebody, you know, and I, and I think we're seeing that in Ukraine and, and the military industrial complex has, has completely profited from all of this. You mentioned Kasper Rekovic, a an expert on the flow of foreign fighters to the war in Ukraine and a non-resident research fellow at the Counter-Extremism Project, saying that while there are neo-Nazis from abroad in Ukraine, the problem shouldn't be overblown. You then quote him saying, it's certainly not as bad as the Russian propaganda wants us to believe. The caution is warranted. And what I see is there is excitement amongst those far-right types online and offline. So this is the position I often find myself uh, in. Can it be both not as bad as the Russians would have us believe and worse than the Ukrainians would like us to think? And is it somewhere in between? Where would you put the accuracy of what is happening along that spectrum? 
I think you had it. I think it's. I, I think it's not near. I think it's not nearly as bad as what Russia says. But also, Russia is saying that like every Ukrainian soldier is a neo-Nazi, like, which is ridiculous. Uh, if you put the the number of the far right linked units of the Ukrainian military, it's still it's only like I think like one percent, maybe even maybe a little bit more. But that's extremely low in terms of the movements and people being interested in the war and the connections and whether or not they're sending uh, people and people are getting involved from the far right globally. I think it's worse than the Ukrainians want you to think. Um, and I think they have a, clearly have a vested interest in that. Uh, I don't think they want to be portrayed this way. And I, you know, I do think the Ukrainian military and the security services there are, are, are pretty interested in stopping it. They have been in the past, but you know, this is also a function of war and conflict. I mean, this is what happens. You know, it's it's not as if we haven't had tons of far-right guys serving in the war on terror and were attracted to it because it was, you know, this, in many ways, racialized war that attracted white supremacists. Same thing's happening in Ukraine. And I think more importantly for the extremists and uh, terrorist watchers, there's a potential that those types of individuals are are still there and they've got weapons in a country that is that has in the past been highly corrupt, but also will be facing a post-war world, which is in almost every context of a post-war difficult and an environment that caters to extremists, but also to criminal networks, which also, you know, the far right is very connected with in Ukraine and in Russia. So uh, as I said, I think it's, you know, it's nowhere near as bad as the way Russia is describing it. I also think it's probably worse than Ukraine likes to think it is. We could have this conversation for another half hour, but unfortunately we don't have that much time in our schedule. But uh, Ben, I do have one last question for you. And I just want to stress to everybody who is listening, read this entire article because there's a whole bunch that we didn't get to touch on. Again, we have been speaking with National Security Reporter Ben Mackich. Recently posted the Intercept piece, Russian military has links to American neo-Nazi and anti-trans figures. You can follow Ben on Twitter at bmackich and follow Ben on Instagram at ben.mackich. I promise we do this with all of our guests, Ben. Our final question is what we call... The question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. I had a whole bunch written up for you, and then you (laughs) said something earlier in the conversation that I thought would be a great question from hell, a great thing to uh, touch back on. I asked you why there's so much interest amongst neo-Nazis when it comes to MMA and hooliganism, and you said that this is toxic masculinity and a sense of insecurity. What do you think causes that insecurity and even fear within neo-Nazis that makes them lash out with this toxic masculinity? What are they insecure about? I've been saying this since I, I, I covered, uh, I got my big breaks covering the, the path of ISIS fighters in the West joining uh, the war there from places like Canada and the U.S. and Europe. And they were leaving this, you know, the sanctity of, of these peaceful nations to fight in a war where people were, you know, often being beheaded with their heads being put on spikes. And I think the thing I said was, and I stick to it um, when it comes to these neo-Nazis and it comes to people like Kapustin and and others, I think testosterone is the worst drug on earth and the frontal cortex of a young man is uh, brutal at best. And I think that there's an age, an age range between probably 16, 17, 
all the way to, you know, mid twenties where, uh, these types of people just crave violence in some way. And I, I think that when you have these types of conflicts and, and these types of ideologies, they, they cater to it. You know, I think it's the same reason that you have, you know, these ridiculous fascinations with people like Andrew Tate. And I think, you know, when it comes to neo-Nazis, part of it, it really is catering to this ridiculous male obsession with violence. And I think, you know, we're in some ways hardwired for it. And I think most men are able to um, deal with it in some way. But when it comes to these types of neo-Nazis, I think they, they don't. And I think that they, 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 they indulge in their lesser angels. Ben, I have really enjoyed this conversation. The writing is fantastic. I really appreciate you being on the show. And now there's a huge problem with your life because I have your contact information. And I'm going to annoy you <laughs> from now on to be back on the show. Thank you so much for being on. This is absolutely fascinating work, and I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I really It has been a great, fun conversation. And I, I have to say, I just love the title of the show. It's so good. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'll tell you sometime how I got, got that name and the hallucinogens I was on at the time. Thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. Can you tell I'm already on vacation in my head? This is hell if you learned something, and I don't know how you could not have learned something from Ben and the connection between U.S. anti-trans neo-Nazi soccer hooligan MMA enthusiasts and the war between Russia and Ukraine. Become a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, where you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com, and you guessed it, clicking on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what do you need a vacation from? And over, let's check out Discord. Uh... On Discord, Kim G says the summer slump. That's a thing. I guess. I Dog know. days, I guess. Dog right? days, yeah, it gets kind of gross out. It's a little gross today. Con Gaku says hell. There you go. Crime Doctor 2019 <laughs> says <laughs> that's a good name. <laughs> Family but limited limited to 2019. I just want to point you right out. before and after 2019. Not a crime doctor. Just uh, one glorious year apparently. <laughs> uh, family vacations. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> thing to take a vacation <laughs> from. Totally. Uh, exe zero four two two. The content mines. <laughs> oh, those content oh, mines. Those content mines. Uh, is this a content mine? Yes, it is. Okay, so <laughs> I, I, it's about to cave in. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's from all the content. <laughs> exactly. Those things can't hold up that much content. No. No. Uh, over on Twitter, uh, Hockey Pango says, white people slash myself. <laughs> Agent Sideways answers the phrase climate change on every new bulletin. And Edison K says heaven overrated. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. Got more? Or do you want to uh, wait till after? Let's uh, see. Jeffy? I'll do a 
Yeah, I'll do a couple Facebooks and we can go to Jeff. Uh, Brianna K says the outdated demand of the 40 hour work week. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, And then. uh, That's just sad. Riley C. (laughs) I want to know more about this, Riley. Answers my tapeworm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my grandfather had a tapeworm. Oh, yeah? I never met my grandfather. But I did find his tapeworm in a jar in my Whoa. grandmother's attic. <laughs> Man. I didn't meet him because he was long dead by the time I was born, so I just want you to know that tapeworm had to be at least 15 years old when I saw it. Did your grandmother have an explanation for uh, why it was in the attic? Uh, I asked my dad about it, and okay. he said, don't ask your grandmother. That's, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. It opens up so many questions. And when she's Roma, you know, you don't know what's going on. There's sure. Some, there's something. Yeah. Something. Any others? Uh, yeah, we have a few more. Should we do it after Jeff? No, let's do it after Jeff. The All person right. with our favorite answer to this week's question from wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer to this week's question from at our Facebook page, tweet it at us, post it on Patreon, post it on Discord, or you can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. Uh, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell because going on vacation is all i can think about a family vacation mind you on patreon this week i have some cognitive dissonance concerning that vacation with family an annual vacation to the same place dating back 65 years as of this august an annual family vacation the history of which dates back to before i was even born before I was a twinkle in anybody's eye. A vacation that not only now only has one surviving member from that original cast who started the whole thing. And the fact that we started the last couple of weeks of shows with uh, guests who discussed and are proponents of family abolition, as in abolishing the traditional family. So I'm having a little bit of a disconnect between the fact that I'm going on family vacation and I'm been talking about abolishing the family for the last couple of weeks. But when I think about the people at our annual family vacation, it is far from a traditional family and always changing. In fact, I bet if you take a closer look at whatever people you consider family and what you consider your family, those traditions are likely breaking down within them as well. Also on Patreon this week, we are sharing an interview from 20 years ago when due to my finances at the time and work commitments of myself and my non-wife, as and the show was just starting, it was just in its infancy. Uh, we could not join in on our family vacation fun uh, at that time, 20 years ago today. So, both as a follow up to last week's 2015 talk with Brian Muir on Brazil and to see what I was doing rather than going on vacation, we will be playing our August 2003 conversation with Wendy Wolford, uh, co author of the then just published Food First report entitled. Now it is time. The MST, the Landless Workers Movement, and grassroots land reform in Brazil. But the only way you can hear me reconsider family before my family vacation and a 20-year-old talk on Brazil's landless people, I'm sorry, landless workers movement is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on the next couple of weeks of this is hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. And Will, I know you have Hefe on the line. 
Dare to be aggressively humble. The two most canonical science fiction works when I started high school in the mid-1970s were Dune, which around then was still a trilogy, and the Foundation series, also a trilogy. Dune was written by Frank Herbert and Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Both authors were born in 1920. Herbert died in 1986, Asimov in 1992. In both trilogies, humans have established themselves on planets all over the galaxy. In both trilogies, the organizing model of the galaxy is the Empire. Empire is, in fact, the name of the cloned multi-generational triumvirate ruler in Foundation. The head of the Galactic Empire in the Dune universe is the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV of House Carino. I wonder how much those seminal science fiction trilogies, The Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia of science fiction, influenced the galactically imperial daydreams of today's crop of eugenicist utilitarians calling themselves long-termists. I love the quotation from Vonnegut I keep seeing on social media that may or may not be a rebuttal to these would-be space edgelord conquistadors. To me, wanting every habitable planet to be inhabited is like wanting everybody to have athlete's foot. Why do you find it necessary to call them edgelords, you might ask? I didn't. I called them space edge lords, because all three of the highest profile examples of overprivileged jerks only went to the edge of space. Richard Branson is the third, in case you forgot. They're lords of the edge of space. Space edge lords. Also, ultimately, the edgelord's signature activities eventually end in ejaculation. This alludes to my earlier labeling of Foundation and Dune as perhaps seminal influences on these space edgelords and their lusting after planetary colonization. It's all conjecture at this point, I admit. You might not know this, but Vonnegut wrote a humorous story on the subject of inseminating the Andromeda Galaxy. He wrote it for an anthology Harlan Ellison, the bad boy of science fiction, was putting together called Again Dangerous Visions, an appropriate title for a follow-up to his first such anthology, Dangerous Visions. Vonnegut's story was called The Big Space F***. Read it and then see 2001 A Space Odyssey. I guarantee you'll laugh when you first see the ship, Discovery One. Or just look at Bezos' Edgelord rocket. There's a visual joke for you. In Vonnegut's story, Earth is going to launch a rocket ship full of semen into space to spread the seed of humanity. The rocket is called the Arthur C. Clarke, named after the author of the novel 2001 A Space Odyssey and the co-author with Kubrick of the screenplay. It's a very, very short thing. The Vonnegut story, not Arthur C. Clarke's rocket. I'm including a link to the story in the text version of this piece. 
It's only fitting that our three paragons of Space Edge Lordship should be supremely vain and neurotically worried about the way the public perceives them. They are the most obscenely obnoxious clown mascots of capitalist overreach. They represent everything wrong with the way our species is being piloted toward its destiny. They are drunk drivers of a third millennium falcon squirting from their joysticks as they zap into hyperspace. It's the utterly wrong thinking and behavior they themselves exemplify so comically that dooms us humans never to fulfill their asinine ambition. We'll be lucky to survive to the end of the 21st century, let alone continue our turgid rush toward the unreachable limits of knowledge and endeavor. I see us, assuming we survive, 10,000 years in the future, our numbers have been whittled to maybe a dozen small tribes. We strive to maintain our languages, but it's a losing effort. We as a species are on our way out. Whenever they can bring themselves to look upon our disgrace, the neighboring polar gorillas who have mastered the art of making fire eye us with pity. But one or more of us happen to salvage copies of the Foundation Trilogy, Foundation, Foundation and Empire, and Second Foundation, and Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. We strain to read them to each other in the eternally cloudy dusk of the last temperate forests of the South Pole, but we are successful in spite of the waning of the light and of our intellectual powers. Do we laugh at the hubris of imperial speculation? Do we snicker how funny these people were to believe that their worst impulses would somehow lead them to spread themselves across the Milky Way where they would thrive rather than drown in an ocean of their own filth on the tiny parochial planet they barely strayed a few million miles from? Isn't it rich? Is that what we'll cackle? Or will we believe those books are ancient historical texts? Describing the once glorious history of our decayed species, will we weep and rend our garments like the people of Israel by the rivers of Babylon remembering Zion? Will we flagellate ourselves in penance? Will we cry out in atonement for the failure of a once great galactic civilization, a failure of which we are the last evaporating stains of evidence? More fun than that, will we perhaps celebrate a holiday during which we revile the errors of old? Will we maybe invent 365 such holidays, one for every day of the year? We'll sing songs about not going down that road of poisoning ourselves and the world this time, siblings. We'll not allow lords to lord it over us. We'll not merely exclude ambitious warriors from our peaceful societies, but anathematize their overweening desires for domination. We will cut every egoist down in their prime by drumming into them their own humble humanity. Every winner will be taught they are not better than any loser. The value of every human, every animal, every plant, every mushroom, every slime mold, every river, every rock, every breath of air will be drummed into these wannabe Alexanders, Picassos, Jinguses, Buckleys, Shakespeare's, Edison's, Leonardo's, and Einstein's. Oh, what you create is beautiful, Picasso, and your equations sublimely elegant Einstein, but look at the opalescent drool of the legless, brain-damaged, twisted human born of fetal alcohol syndrome. Are you better than this? Is your life worth more? No, we'll admonish them. A thousand times no. The beauty you create is as the drool of human gargoyles, and their drool is sublime as your most treasured masterpiece. 
And I know this sounds superficially like the story Harrison Bergeron from Vonnegut's collection Welcome to the Monkey House, but it's not. Non-rights-depriving achievement contributing to the common good and joy will not be hindered. Just put in its proper perspective. And then we'll end the year by burning in effigy the three space edge lords and dance around the flames chanting, not this time, not this time, not this time, you naked emperors of nothing. But why wait? Why oughtn't we try this out right now before the worship of overfed, wealth-hoarding, self-pleasuring chew-pizzles takes us all the way down to ignominy and ruin? Burn them in effigy. Although, as long as they're contemporaneous with us, why waste effigy stuffing? The better future loves a good human sacrifice. The better future loves the smell of burning imperial flesh. Do we dare dream of a better non-imperial future? Let's, let's dare. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. You know, that's something we have to get on our merch list is uh, this is hell effigies. I think they'd go over really well. Oh, my God. They'd be wonderful. I think we we would burn through that inventory very quickly. <laughs> so to speak. So to speak. Jaffe? What? Are we up against the clock again? Up against the clock. That uncomfortable Listen. clock. You know how much this it makes David Isaacson cry when we don't get to banter. I know. So let's enjoy listening to David Isaacson cry. <laughs> okay. All right, Jeffy. Till next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from Helen. Tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding so far. Or completely. Uh, this week's question from Hell is <laughs> what do you need a vacation from? Jeffy's still on the line. He sure is. <laughs> Take the t- hot mic. I'm glad we cut him I off. I just cut him off. <laughs> uh, all that power. Um, let's see, uh, You've gone mad. <laughs> so over on Facebook, uh, Thomas Kennedy answers to the question, what do you need a vacation from? Uh, the Anthropocene. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good that's one. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Fabio A says, life, the universe, and everything. Uh, Pretty much covers it. Yeah. Uh, Doug M says, vacate my body, vacate my soul. Wow. Suck my, uh, it's a P word. No, all right. It's not radio friendly. I see. Uh, and uh, <laughs> let's rock and roll. <laughs> all right, Doug. Wow. There's a vibe going on yeah. in, in Doug's place. Yeah, Doug, um, Doug's on vacation. Let's see. And I think that's it. All right. So the answers I like the most were, and uh, if anything really sticks out to you, Will, uh, Yairo M. saying work in the work-adjacent petty dramas. Uh, Nasrafesh saying the poison ivy it keeps showing up at the landscaping job I'm at the past week and a half. <laughs> I'm pretty good at washing up at the end of the day, but when you're it, when you're in it, you're in it. Uh, and I, I like that just because they're an outdoor worker, which is, yeah. you know, a lot of people aren't thinking about them during uh, climate change. And PF saying all the forest fire smoke working outside in the heat gets pretty hellish when that smoke sets in. I did like Thomas K as the Anthropocene. Mm. And uh, Riley's my tapeworm. Any of those really stick out to you? <laughs> I mean, tapeworm tickled me. Uh, tapeworm did tickle me uh, as well. Having a vacation from mm-hmm. your tapeworm. Yeah, I, let's go with that one. All right. That's pretty damn good and right. very personal. We really appreciate you sharing, yeah. Riley. I hope that you uh, have the best of luck with that tapeworm. Please send us any updates. Yes, and uh, let me just tell you one thing. Don't pull. 
<laughs> Whatever you do, <laughs> don't do <not> pull. pull. <laughs> so uh, congratulations, Riley. All we need is your um, a mailing address and tell us which piece of merchandise at thisishell.com uh, that you want when you click on support. By the way, Neil C., you were last week's winner of the question from Helen. You actually came all the way from Brooklyn to the party. I'm not too sure. Did you pick up your This Is Hell merch for a winning, or do we now have to send it to you? My answer to this week's question from Hell, uh, what do you need a vacation from? I need a vacation from death. The repeated reminders that this surgery or that operation or some medical procedure could lead to me being dead I mean, is that asking too much? Two full weeks of some medical for professional or healthcare worker not telling me about risks of my pending doom? Thanks to everybody who sent in their answer to this week's question from hell. Will, for the next couple of weeks while I'm out of town, we will be playing in chronological order our six interviews with historian Gerald Horn, as we have done an interview with Gerald every year for the past six years, including earlier this month. And the five previous conversations we had were selected by you, the listener, as one of your favorite interviews on the show each year, which we then replay during our annual end-of-year recap of the very best of This Is Hell. So... Do you, know, do you know anything else about what's happening within the next couple of weeks? Are we doing... I know Seb says he's going to do a live moment of truth in two Mondays. Is are Ronaldo and Jeff just sending you in best ofs? Do you know? I'm pretty sure we're getting best ofs. Yeah. Okay. Which are always great. A huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Kat Jarvin and Dan Kugler, Will Ippen, who are all going to be here during This Is Hell office hours this evening. Thanks to Jeff uh, Dorchin, Ronaldo Magaldi, Sebastian Vupper. Also thanks to Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because. Huge thanks to Egon Scheel for booking the bands that played at this year's anniversary and listener appreciation party talk to you tomorrow Thursday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when I will be reconsidering family before leaving on family vacation and we'll be playing a 20 year old conversation on the landless workers movement in Brazil which continues to this day this is hell office hours our weekly meet and greet that's really a drink and think are happening tonight Wednesday beginning around 6pm at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood these are our last office hours until I believe it's Wednesday, August 16th. So if you want to hang out for office hours, this is a good time to do it. And especially tonight, because we'll be under a severe thunderstorm watch or warning. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Again, thanks to Will Ippen for producing today's show. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words... Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>